and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Sean Pattenden. Now, are you on the square? Are you more grandmaster than the Furious Five? Professor John Dickey is the author of The Craft, How the Freemasons Made the Modern World. It's a forensic look into the history and spread of the most secret of secret societies. Does the centuries-old brotherhood still have power and influence? Or is it the last outpost for men of a certain age who like to dress up funny? My first question would be, is Freemasonry a secret cult that controls the world or a glorified drinking club? Um, it's neither really, although it, it it has had aspirations to be both in, in different circumstances. And some people have certainly imagined it to be a great conspiracy to control the world. How did it come about and why? Why did we need Freemasons and why did we need a secret society? I'm, I'm not sure we need <laughs> Freemasons. We don't need any expression of uh, our, our culture. We don't need cricket and football. But <laughs> it's there and it's very important and very influential. Um, it came about really between the 17th and the 18th century when you get a kind of mixture of the uh, folklore of stonemasons mm. And a little bit of Renaissance philosophy, sort of mystical Renaissance philosophy, uh, centered on a thing called the art of memory. Mm. Um, and the sort of great 18th century London world of clubs, you know, gentlemen's clubs. That's when it was kind of really exploding. And London was in the, the vanguard of creating these spaces where outside of the political institutions, the court or the parliament mm. or whatever, outside of the family, there were spaces where men particularly could associate and develop ideas and well, do whatever the they wanted. I mean, not just men particularly, the main, I mean, you know, absolutely. Yeah, they, they yeah, kind yeah, of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what we call civil society yes. and Freemasonry is a very important part of that. And you say spaces, I'm reading the book, The Craft, these spaces grew to be absolutely enormous. There's one temple that uh, I think in America that has over 1,000 rooms and it has a banqueting hall and it has um, catering for up to how many people? 5,000 or something? Yeah, 6,000 I think it is in the Grand Goodness Lodge me. of um, the Great Freemasons Hall in Detroit. Yes. Yeah, it, the, the 19th century and early 20th centuries were the great era of Freemasonry, particularly in the United States. Yes. Why and, was the US drawn to Freemasonry so much then? What was the appeal there? Yeah, Freemasonry arrives in, um, like in the rest of the British Empire, not long after it really first takes its modern form in mm. the early 18th century. Um, but it really takes off uh, under the Republic, under George Washington. When he's president, he's basically this sort of demigod of the new republic. He's given the job of president with no job description. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. kind of designing it for himself. Mm. And they're, they're building a capital there and then that they know he knows is going to take his name. So he has this huge sense of responsibility because he knows that the lessons of history are that republics don't work. They don't last long. They mm. collapse into anarchy or tyranny. And what the missing ingredient in republics is, is God and the sense of the, all the symbolism of monarchy and God and all that kind mm. of thing. So what he needs is a bit of ceremonial, a bit of all the sort of things that religion used to supply mm -hmm. to legitimate 
power. And the great thing about Freemasonry is that it's always, always been about religious tolerance, at least in its core values. Mm. When it's first founded, it's founded in an era of huge religious conflict when, you know, political power and religious power overlapped. You know, you've had the kind of um, uh, the, the civil wars in Britain in the middle of the 17th century and so on. So there's a huge premium on an element of religious tolerance in Whig England. And Freemasonry is perhaps the most extreme expression of that. You know, you get uh, Jews in uh, Masonic lodges in 18th century London. You even get Catholics, which at the time was Yes, they amazing. weren't so keen on Freemasonry, uh, were they? Africans, people of all social mm. stations. So there was this element of religious tolerance, which of course perfectly suited the American case where uh, religious freedom was part of the Constitution. It was the reason mm. why a lot of people had come to America in the first place. So Washington embraces Freemasonry. He makes the Freemasons into his impressive scenarios of mm. ceremony. And so when he, for example, lays the foundation stone of the Capitol building mm. in this new city just emerging from the mud that will be yes. Washington, D.C., he does it with a very big, very public Masonic ceremony because the Freemasons seem to be people who say they're very good at ceremonies and they can say, look, posterity, this is us, we're doing something really special and important. Mm. And it really caught on and, and Freemasonry became, um, you know, having been invented in, between England and Scotland, the 17th, 18th century, really found a second home, a home from home in the United States. Mm. It's, it's like a brotherhood franchise, isn't it, of some sort? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Freemasonry is many things. It, it, I call it a kind of second order religion mm. in that its rituals and so on have a kind of moral and ethical purpose, mm. yeah. Although, but what is that purpose, that secret secret Well, purpose? what the Freemasons say is that it's about building better men. Just as mm. the stonemasons of old built cathedrals and castles, so we're going mm -hmm. to build better men. They're nothing to do with stonemasons anymore. The, the final links to stonemasons mm, mm. really ended at the beginning of the 18th century. But they use all of the kit of stonemasons, the mm. gloves, the trowels, mm -hmm. the plumb lines, the aprons, as sort of metaphors mm -hmm. of their moral journey or moral journey in mm. Freemasonry. That, that, that's the idea, basically. But, of course, the secrecy is what generates all the suspicion. And, yes. You know, they're clearly up to no good if they won't come clean mm, about mm. what they're actually doing. That That's what um, the belief is. For Freemasons themselves, Freemason, secrecy is a good recruiting sergeant. People want to come along. They want to find out what the secrets are. They want mm. to be part of that in Join crowd. us and then you'll know. And then you'll know what the secrets are. are the secrets actually are extraordinarily banal once you get to it. You know, you go through all these elaborate Masonic um, ceremonies, mm. you take terrifying oaths. You yes, know, it's a, half your... of you is undressed at points. Yeah, and... yeah, yes. you've got to roll your... In the first uh, <laughs> ritual you go through, you roll up your trouser yeah. leg, you take all the metal objects mm. off you, you're blindfolded, you have a noose around you your neck, and you breast. bear your... Yes, yes you mm. bear your peck, one peck. <laughs> Um, and then you go through this very complicated, elaborate ritual and mm. you swear this terrifying oath to 
um, to meet a horrifying, bloodthirsty end mm. if you betray <laughs> the secrets of Freemasonry. At the end of which, you learn the first great secret of Freemasonry, which is that it's a good idea to be a nice chap if you can. <laughs> so, and there are the, and the other secrets of yeah. Freemasonry is just uh, just as banal. Yes. Um, this the point is what is I that, expected when I joined the Madness fan club. So it's not that. Far <laughs> from that yeah. So it's it it it's not the content of the secrets that's important. That's it's that's a lot of it's the rituals. Mm. It's the ideas that her um, you know it, it's the sense of togetherness mm. that you uh, comes through the rituals. But along but secrecy is bound to attract trouble bound to attract trouble and it has done right from the beginning. And here we go with modern conspiracy theory. Is it the source of modern conspiracy theory, the Tin Hat Brigade? Um, because as we know, it was blamed for the French Revolution at one point, Freemasonry. Hitler hated Freemasonry. There's a lot in Mein Kampf about how it's a Jewish conspiracy. Does it feed into what we have yeah, now? Yeah, we owe the modern conspiracy theory, this idea of a secret elite controlling world affairs from behind the scenes. We owe that that to fear of Freemasonry and fear of Masonic secrecy. Basically, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, the French Revolution created turmoil, you know, the overthrow of throne and altar, the kind of pillars of the providential social order until that point were destroyed. And the Catholic Church was desperately looking around for an explanation. And, and um, in the end, it was this French abbey living in exile on the Edgware Road in London mm. who wrote this huge volume mm. which explained the origins of um, the French Revolution in a conspiracy by Freemasons. And that took off. Mm. It became the official ideology of the Catholic Church in the 19th century. And then at the end of the 19th century, you start to get other groups political left, political right, latching onto this model, it begins to be, a, so you get um, anti-Semitism mm -hmm. bolted onto it. It sort of remodels old-fashioned anti-Semitism of misers and those sorts mm. of stereotypes into a conspiracy theory and so on and so forth. And also there was mention, am I right, of satanic cults in that particular Missive, which then feeds into the satanic cults and child abuse, which we have seen recently in American politics. Yeah, the 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 kind of themes of the Catholic Church's long, long tradition mm. of paranoia about the Freemasons keep resurfacing in other um, in other forms of conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for the Catholic Church, the secrets of Freemasonry that they would never tell anybody were satanic. Mm. Um, and the satanic purpose of overthrowing uh, Christ's mm. church and overthrowing kings and creating anarchy, uh, that was the dark secret at the heart of Freemasonry for others. Masonic secrecy becomes this kind of well mm. that people look into and mm. they see their own obsessions reflected back. They see what they want to see and so on. More recently, the Freemasons are still within the public eye, at least in UK and UK politics, through what seem to be links with institutionalised corruption. Can you tell us a little bit about the Daniel Morgan case, who was the private investigator who was murdered in 1987? Yeah, that was the most recent instance, a, a, a sort of story that repeats itself, mm. but the most um, recent example of that. 
Um, Daniel Morgan, remember, private investigator, killed with an axe in a car park in South London. Whole complicated story of police corruption and it involved the media and all sorts of things. Uh, the Met never got to the bottom of it. And then there was a judicial inquiry into mm, it. Just, mm. I think it reported, what was it, last year? Yeah. And reached the conclusion, uh, basically, that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally corrupt. You may remember the headlines. Yeah. That was the... Uh, yes. Now, along the way, because one of the policemen involved in this story was both a Freemason and a paedophile, so not a great guy, uh, among other things... The theory that the Freemasons were involved in this and there was mm. some sort of Masonic plot involved. And just as had happened in um, Home Home Affairs Select Committee in mm. Parliament in the 1990s, it happened again. When people have given a serious in, in, you know, investigative intention into this, what they find is, yeah, there's some bad apples in the Freemasonry, but there's no evidence that Freemasonry itself is an agent of corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no disproportionate influence of Freemasonry. They find this again and again. But what they conclude is, hang on a sec, but this secrecy, it smells really bad and it brings discredit to the institutions. Yes, when you need transparency in institutions like the police and like lawyers. Uh, yeah, the, the, the problem is that it's been tried. It was tried as the result of this, the recommendations that Home Affairs Select Committee um, when the Blair government came in in 1997, mm -hmm. they included partly because they wanted to throw a bone to the left mm -hmm. of the party mm -hmm. who led the, the, the hue and cry against the Freemasons. They introduced uh, precisely that requirement that you had to say if you were a Freemason. And then virtually on the day Labour left power under Gordon Brown, they did away with it and saying, actually, it hasn't worked. It's not achieved anything, mm. you know, in Wales and in other cases in Italy and so on. It's run into constant problems, human rights problems, mm -hmm. because if the reason is merely because people are suspicious of Freemasons. Yes. I mean, the thing is, it, it, if suspicion alone justifies coming down on Freemasons, then anybody could say, well, I'm suspicious of Jews or I'm suspicious of Muslims, so they've got to come clean about who they are. Um, where does it stop? And, it, and in fact, you know, I think Freemasons have become people's favourite bogeyman when it comes to sort of shadowy networking and, and, and you know, mutual back scratching mm -hmm. and all of that kind of thing. When actually, really, the, the problem is much more obvious. The problem in the 1980s was police corruption, mm. as it is, you know. <laughs> um, the problem is the role of public schools in, mm. you know, mm. and all of the Oxford and Cambridge and all of yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Why blame the Freemasons? I mean, I'm sure the, the corrupt police who were investigated in the 80s and mm. things like Operation Countryman breathed a huge sigh of relief when it all became a story about the Freemasons. And in your book, you say one of the reasons why the Freemasons wear gloves, not just because it's what Freemasons did when they were hewing stone, but it's so that you can cover up the class of your hands, because obviously a different class centuries ago would have had, you know, lily white hands or they were working hands is that yes true? exactly the the freemasonry is deeply rooted in a kind of formal code of 
equality and tolerance. Mm. Everybody is a brother. Once you enter the lodge, you leave, in theory, you leave your status in the outside world behind you and mm -hmm. you become a brother. Um, whatever religious background you're from, whatever class background you're from. So, yeah, the gloves are a symbol of hiding, say, the calluses on your hand or mm. your, your mm. you know, well-manicured uh, hand of a gentleman or whatever. Uh, and that's very important. It's It's been one of the reasons for Freemasonry's success as a kind of school of political and institutional mm. life. You know, that's that's one of the reasons, again, George Washington latched on it. He called, you know, he said Freemasonry needs to be a lodge for the virtues mm. to teach the American people the virtues needed to take part in public life. Uh, ditto, say, the early history of the movement for Indian ind independence from the British Empire, half mm. the early leadership of um, the Indian National Congress were Freemasons. And Castro was very pro-Freemasons, wasn't he? Yeah, I wouldn't say very, very pro-Freemasons, <laughs> but let, let's, uh, among, I mean, Freemasonry has been banned in pretty much all, all communist regimes with the mm. exception of Castro's mm. Cuba because Freemasons were quite important in the movement for Cuban independence from Spain at the very end of the 19th century. If I wanted to become a Freemason, A, would they have me? And B, how much would it cost? Um, it, they would have you. I mean, I think <laughs> actually these days, because it's a greying organisation, they're very keen to get mm. new members. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just write to the, you know, there's an address on the Grand Lodge website, United Grand Lodge of England, <laughs> okay. and you can write in yeah. and make inquiries. Uh as a woman, you would be allowed into a slightly segregated mm. version of Freemasonry. Mm. In other it's not mixed then. Would it have to be a woman's no, lodge? No, the lodge meetings aren't mixed. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing is, Freemasons have always argued each other. It's like the schisms within the Protestant church mm -hmm. over the ages. You know, you, you, you can't follow them all. You'd go mad. Mm. But Freemasonry in different countries at different times has ad adopted different forms and had different rules. As I speak, in France, the main Masonic organization in France, the Grand Orient of mm. France, allows women in and has mixed mm -hmm. lodge meetings. Women get absolutely equal citizenship of the mm -hmm. Masonic world, if you like. But that's only since I think it was 2010. Mm. They do splinter, though, into groups, as you're saying. There is a football lodge in the UK because I heard them doing a podcast. And they're not that secret because if you look up Freemason podcasts, there's quite a few yeah. and they're incredibly jolly and they talk about all the fun they have at the lodge. <laughs> well, I mean, there have been quite a few sportsmen and footballers. I think Jock Steen was a Freemason. Mm. Um, and I think today, I may be wrong, I think James Beatty. Right. I'm a Stoke fan, so I, I, I'm <laughs> going to remember James Beatty playing yeah. for Stoke was uh, as a Freemason. And Adam, Adam Lalana's dad is a very active Active Freemason, right. yeah. apparently. Um, and then, you know, Arnold Palmer, Clive Lloyd in other sports. So, uh, yeah, the Freemasons are very proud of the mm. famous Freemasons and they tend to put them in the shop window, yes. even if very often they haven't been all that active. <laughs> of uh, course. Yes, just serving drinks. As Kenneth <laughs> Noyce said, just serving drinks. It wasn't oh, that high up. <laughs> what did you uncover while writing the book? And did any of it make you think, yeah, I should really join? 
I got asked a lot by Freemasons mm. whether I whether I thought of joining. I'm an atheist, so right. that completely disqualifies you have to me be, in Britain. We were talking about religion. You have to really be a monotheist. Again, att- you can be you? an atheist in France, so right. I'd have to oh, go okay. across the channel yeah. to join You can't be a Buddhist Freemason, can you? Because that's... Yes, you can. Oh, you can. Yeah, oh. well, I mean, you know, basically any religion is fine. In the past, they've had... You know, in imperial times, they had very big arguments about Hindus, particularly whether mm, they could mm. be join. Uh, but now, in places like Leicester, there's lots of um, you know mm. Hindu Freemasons. It is a human instinct to join a club. They had something there. Is it as popular as it should be? Is it withering on a Freemasonry vine? What is happening with it at the moment? Well, I think, you know, it depends where you go, but in a lot of countries, certainly Britain and America, the two main Mm. homes of it, um, it is ageing. It's a greying organisation. They really need new blood. A few years ago, they went through a sort of glasnost process and Mm. opened up much more. Mm. And as a result, now you can go and visit the Museum of Freemasonry and, you know, in Covent Garden, there's the huge, great Freemasons Hall. You can visit them, you know, Mm -hmm. see the museum, see if it's it's for you. Um, But, I mean, one of the main reasons for its decline is in the past, it was sort of mutual assistance. You know, you would pay a bit of money in and, you know, they, they would sort of give some money to your widow or, or, or whatever. Yes, they would help when you're on your uppers, wouldn't they, without social security Exactly, some, exactly. Um, in the yeah. days before the welfare state, that was uh, extremely, uh, extremely important, extremely useful, particularly, say, in the case of the British Empire. If mm. you're setting off to, you know... Um, uh, run a bit of the empire in some far-flung land, it really helps to have that kind of passport and that kind of backup right. so that you can find friends there and um, and and somebody will look after your widow, widow if you mm-hmm. come down with some strange disease or something. <laughs> Always good to know. After writing the book, did you get much feedback from the Masons? Was there any anger on some parts? No. Um, I, you know, it, there are great piles of the craft uh, for sale in the Freemasons bookshop. Oh. In uh, I've had lots of great. fantastic discussions mm-hmm. with Freemasons. Um, you know, uh, through the course of the research and afterwards, Freemasons all over the world, you know, mm. I've... Uh, given talks to Freemasons in India and Australia, right across Europe. Uh, I'm being flown out to Denver, Colorado to address the Masons of uh, Denver in, in, in the summer, so on and so forth. I mean, Freemasons are just like anybody else, really. There's, you know, uh, what they find in Freemasonry, mm. I think, is, like you say, a but you know, sense of fellowship, sense of a common mm. shared project, chance to do a bit of good, you know, mm-hmm. get involved in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and even those weird rituals, to many, many Freemasons actually find them very meaningful because strip it right down. They're mm. basically about death. They're, they're about giving a shape to death in the way that all religions do, you know, Christianity mm. through the story mm. of Christ and his resurrection. They, You know, it's about facing that issue that we all have to face up to and facing it together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, it's it's got something to say for it. But it has its history is so, so much more than that. Absolutely. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. The book is incredible. Thank you so much, John Dickey, for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. The Craft, How the Freemasons Made the Modern World is out now. And I'd shake your hand 
but I probably shouldn't just in case. <laughs> I'm Sean Pattenden and thank you for listening. There's a new edition of The Bunker every morning, so please do subscribe. And you can support independent broadcasting by backing us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon for extra shows, early access to live events, merchandise offers and more from just £3 a month. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Sean Pattenden. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>